0: Good afternoon. Thank you. Yes, it felt to me to discuss uh, the historical angle here on subversion, which is a very broad and deep field, as I found in uh, a book I recently published called American Betrayal, The Secret Assault on Our Nation's Character. And in terms of trying to understand the lessons that we might learn from our past experience the ideological subversion. We look to the uh, Cold War era and and before it, um, the period of World War II and the 1930s, which is when we actually see the um, dense incursion by American proxies of the Soviet Union, Americans working for Stalin as agents and agents of influence, enter into federal government. We can now confirm this in terms of uh, not just scores or dozens, we have hundreds identified at this point following the dissolution of the Soviet Union and many uh, confirming cables coming out of KGB archives, both in Moscow and the American copies of KGB cables known as the Vanona cables, which were World War II era KGB cables that also identify much of what these people were doing. Um, We only have about 2,900 of those released from the American Archive out of, reportedly, 2 million. Um, And those 2,900 are only, some of them are only partly decrypted and they still include names that are still coded. So we do not have a complete picture of the density of this subversion, but we do have an idea that it, it was strategic and massive. And indeed, as I was doing my research, I came to think of it um, as a a veritable army uh, of de facto occupation in terms of influence on the American policymaking chain. And I think that's where, for me, as a journalist, and I I, I write a weekly column, and have been covering these matters, since, of course, since 9-11, this is where the parallels start to become very pronounced and um, striking in terms of comparing it to, influence, Islamic influence, Muslim Brotherhood front group influence on the US policy making chain today. And so this is how I ended up writing a book um, that I never set out to write. because I actually was more interested in the current situation. But when I found out there was some precedent in our past, that's when I really did this very deep um, rabbit hole hunt for for answers and for for more in, um, information about comparisons. And one one point I, I heard raised earlier in, in the last panel, I would like to just mention in passing. There actually is great precedent for fear of offending the Russians in our past, and this you know we definitely deal with this on a daily basis. At least for the political world um, and the journalistic world, even in terms of fear of offending Islam, um, that's a mantra. But I was quite struck and quite fascinated to discover. This was a motivational watchword that indeed was a tool, um, I would argue, of appeasement of the Soviet Union, um, particularly during World War II period. Fear of offending the Russians was very much on their minds of our, of our policy, of our military strategies, and so on. Um, so we do actually have even a parallel with that. In terms of uh, lessons learned, however, which I believe I, I is my, my topic today, I would say we flunked our first experience with subversion. And um, this is disturbing because even back in the day, and I'm talking about a period uh, that we would identify as, as, as Cold War, early Cold War, and, and World War II. And the reason it's so disturbing in particular, given our current situation, is that we did have, at the head of the FBI at that time, a stalwart anti-communist who truly understood communist subversion. Since 9-11, we have never had such a man at the top of the FBI. We do not have anyone who has had any kind of deep understanding of of Islam um, or the threat that Islamic law and jihad and so on, opposed to, our form of liberty. So we already are starting off at a very grave disadvantage today that is something different from before. And so why do I say we've flunked? I actually say we lost. And I I make a very um, controversial argument in my book that um, we lost and we don't even know it, which is part of where we come in with my subtitle, which is the secret assault on our nation's character. Um, I uncovered what strikes me as a false, or rather dissected a false narrative that I think we have come to embrace as a reality uh, that has been imposed on the events as they happened. And the thing that was so striking to me while I was doing this is that as a daily journalist, again, I feel like we're going through this same thing again. We are having a false narrative imposed on us, just as a few generations ago this was done to us before. For example, we think we've won the Cold War. We declared victory after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And yet our college campuses are outposts of Marx. And right here above us, the majority in the House, the Republican conservative majority, so they say, um, they can't even get the votes together to vote to defund socialized medicine. What does that mean? I mean, they don't talk about it as socialized medicine. We don't talk about this notion of of Cold War at home that somehow we lost to get our campuses to this point. I mean, that's sort of nothing we even think about. We don't connect these dots. And so this is part of the reason that that I I started coming up with this new idea about what actually we went through and how actually we should be regarding ourselves in terms of victory or defeat, ideological victory versus ideological defeat. And I would say we're certainly um, looking at a situation where the debate, is very empty. And I think that this is another parallel we have with our past. Um, it is just a fact that during World War II, we had the federal government whitewashing communism in many very similar ways to the way the federal government was whitewashed Islam in the post 9 11 era. Uh, striking categories of uh, similarities. For example, um, uh, books even in, in outside the federal government's purview, the, the publishing industry voluntarily decided not to publish anti-communist books to, for the duration of the war. So again, you're losing context about what is going on, certainly in the future. Um, how did this happen and what's happening today? One of the striking things for me in terms of, of reworking this material was to stop thinking about the 20th century as the uh, battle between the free world and communism. It suddenly became clear me. I was looking, from my own vantage point, at a struggle between the forces of concealment and the forces of exposure. What did they conceal? The communist conspiracy in America. And I say that without quotation marks. This was going on directed by Moscow. Again, we have this confirmation now of hundreds of agents. We know it existed. Years ago, people knew it existed. Um, but whether they were the witnesses who broke with the communist movement and came forward, like a Winford Chambers, whose name is still famous today, or the great investigators upstairs you know, decades ago, that would include Senator Joseph McCarthy, Senator Pat McCarran on the other side of the aisle, and others also in the house, um, they were demonized, they were destroyed, and the narrative rolled over them. So this is why I maintain that we have not ever really come to grips with this penetration as a nation. What it did to us, not just in the policy-making chain, but also in the culture. Where did religion go? Where did God go? the impact on our character, where did moral relativism come from, where did ends justify the means come from, where did lying, institutional lying come from. These are some of the things I'm working through. Um, It becomes clear to me recently, especially, that this is kind of a verboten subject. We're not supposed to examine the impact of this aversion. And I would say, true today about the Islamic influence on the policymaking chain. We only have to think back to last summer when Representative Michelle Bachmann and four House conservatives, uh, colleagues in the House, joined together. I think Newt Gingrich called them the, po- uh, the National Security Five and asked a question. They didn't call for hearings the way their, their forebears would have in the 1940s and 50s. They did not set up hearings. They did not. They don't have a House of American Activities Committee to do so. Um, they asked for inspectors general to examine evidence of Muslim Brotherhood penetration of the policymaking chain at state, at defense, and Justice Department, and so on, a couple of other the big agencies, uh, Homeland Security, um, the White House uh, Office of National Security Director, and she was demonized to a point of political neutralization. Um, She was called McCarthyite. So again, we're coming back to this notion of what is going on really. We can now say that there was this incredible penetration of the federal government under Roosevelt that the investigators were now symbolized by McCarthy. There were others, but he is now the demon symbol. They had something to investigate. How can we still be using McCarthyism to stop the investigation or stop even thinking about what's going on? But this is what happened in our time. So I would argue our lesson here is that we really have to start getting our facts straight and putting things back into a more logical context. Um, We have this new confirmation from Soviet archives. I would put new in quotation marks for some of it because truly it it confirms what is um, in declassified FBI files and congressional investigations and witness testimony that we had half a century ago, but now we have it sort of wrapped up. and I would just like to uh, close with, with something that was, I found very striking back in, you know, we think of these things as having been brought forward after World War II and, you know, with the great witnesses, such as Whitaker Chambers, another one, Elizabeth Bentley, who'd been a communist courier as well, came to the FBI and gave 140 names of, of Soviet assets and agents, um, very useful. But that wasn't until the end of 1945, and then the famous Hiss-Chambers hearings in 1948, and then you go into the McCarthy period era and the other people in the 1950s. 1944, 1944, a man named uh, John Bricker, who was a third-term governor of Ohio, Republican governor, who would become a noted senator, actually, later on. But he was running for vice president against, uh, at this point, of course, it was Roosevelt running for the fourth term, and he was on the ticket, Bricker was on the ticket with Thomas Dewey. And he actually brought up during the, uh, um, October, right before the election date, he brought up communist penetration of the Roosevelt administration. And it was his whistle-stop tour. And he talked about radicals and communists boring from within. Um, he was able to ha- talk about a list of about 1,100 names that had been compiled in the House un Activities Committee before the war or by, by about 1941 or so. And those names included Alger, you know, noted spies. I'm going to mention Alger Hiss, Harry Dexter White, Harold Glasser, Lachlan Curry, who worked directly for Roosevelt and White House. And he was explaining that this was a fifth column with impact on our policy making. And anyhow, he couldn't. they obviously lost, and they got nowhere with this whole incredibly shocking speech that he gave repeatedly across the country, this incredible information before we had all this investigation, really, that came in the post-war period. I'd just like to mention one thing because, this is where I think we are today, um, he was discussing this and putting it in the context of um, you know what was going on in America, and it didn't get anywhere. And I would argue that has to do with the fact that after all these years of American whitewashing of communism, you had Uncle Joe <coughs> being promoted to Stalin, the great murderer, Uncle Joe being promoted, uh, the Soviets were being promoted as Democrats, Communism was being promoted as compatible with democracy. I and mean, these are some of the things we hear today, frequently, about uh, you know, all vectors of jihad and Islam is all compatible. We're getting the same kind of treatment uh, conditioning. And um, at a certain point, um, I think with the years of incessant propaganda, we do become, as there was a great military analyst named Hanson Baldwin, he said, we become victims of our own propaganda. Enemy fil- infiltration as described by Bricker, didn't make sense to the American people, couldn't make sense to the American people. It was it it, 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 it was as if he was talking about a fifth column, but the hostility at, or of this fifth column or the purpose of this column was so foreign to the American people they couldn't probably understand what he was talking about. And I'm sure he would be demonized or at least um, dismissed as a crazy person or someone extreme. And this is where we are today because you know, many of us in this room who deal with Islam Jihad issues, Islamic law issues, and so on, understand that the public square does not entertain these notions, you have to do it on the sides. And so once again, the American people are without context, cannot possibly make informed decisions and cannot even entertain this as a realistic proposition because of the same silence. And I see that as a real correlation with... What we went through in the past, and as I noted to begin with, we didn't do very well that first time around, and, and you know I argue we're doing worse today. And on that happy note, <laughs> I will close. Thank you very much.